Okay, thank you for joining my friends. Today, we'll be focusing on the emergence. So, as we've learned in our previous episode, lots of things are starting to change very quickly. The royal couriers, the hasty riders have set out in an urgent in very hasty fashion. And this is all by Edict of the King. The purpose is to disseminate the new order as quickly as possible throughout the kingdom. And in verse 14, which we concluded in the previous episode, in our previous class, we finish with the words, Vahadat nitna b'shushan habira. And the decree was also issued in the Shushan, capital city as well. Now, it's really important for us maybe to step back for just a moment and kind of recalibrate. So what's going on over here? We've learned in this chapter that the laws of Persia, the Persian Empire, will not be revoked and they will not be changed. That's the way Achashverosh wants it. Or needs it to be. However, Although the original edict that details the annihilation of the Jewish people is then still in effect, Mordechai has very wisely initiated a new edict. A new edict that says anti-Semites can rise up, but beware, the Jews will be defending themselves. And they will do so in unison. They'll be coming together, they'll be training, they'll be well-armed, and perhaps most importantly, not only will the Jewish people be sanctioned or permitted to defend themselves, but the official forces, security forces, defense forces, armed forces of the Persian Empire, both provincially, municipally, and probably even federally, will be there to back up the Jewish people in their bid to rid the world of these evil people, these extremist, hateful, would-be murderers. And this uh, gets disseminated throughout the whole kingdom. And it kind of comes to a head right here. Right here it comes to a head. The legislation or the new rule is spread throughout Persia as well as well as the capital city. And in the capital city, something happens, something very important happens. And that's what verse 15 focuses on. Mordechai, 
who was recently appointed viceroy or chief minister or prime minister of the Persian Empire, now emerges. This is a big deal. This emergence of Mordechai. He emerges robed in royal raiments. And we get the details of how he's robed and the symbolism of his new suit of clothing. And we hear about a joy that's triggered throughout the entire city. And today's class is going to be about the emergence. Why did he emerge at this point? What was achieved or accomplished with this emergence? And what spiritual lessons can we learn from the methodology of the emergence as it is described in the details of the Megillah? This and so much more awaits you. I'm so pleased you're joining youtube.com forward slash Mendel Kaplan. Please subscribe and enable notifications. Today we're going to learn about a really a phenomenal amount of information, some very fascinating and interesting and even uplifting things that can, if you wanted to, change your life for the better. Let's take it from the top. Why does the Megillah suddenly speak about this emergence? And is it really a, a big deal? Well, let me tell you that it is a big deal. It's a big deal because in Halacha, the Ramah, Rabbeinu Moshe Iserlizn, who is the Ashkenazi author of the Shulchan Aruch, if you will, in the end of chapter 690, which is part of the laws of Purim, the laws of the Megillah, the Ramah says, There are those who have written, that there are four verses of redemption which are read aloud. The first is Ish Yehudi. That was in the beginning of the Megillah. That's the rise of Mordechai, or Mordechai being identified as a leader of the Jewish people. And the next, Mordechai And Mordechai emerged. So clearly, this emergence is a big deal because it's one of only four verses that's read aloud during the Megillah reading. Nebuchadnezzar, in his commentary, says that the notion of Umordechai Yotza being read aloud is Mishum Simcha. It's because it adds an element of joy to the mix of Megillah. The Ramah says, Hachazen After the entire crowd has read this verse out loud, the Megillah reader will intone its words on his own so that everybody's listen. Mishnah Bruce says, That's This is done so as to broadcast and make known to the congregation. So that the entire Megillah is heard from a kosher Megillah. Because remember, many of the people who are sitting in the shul, if not most of the people in many, many synagogues, do not have a kosher Megillah in their hands. So when they're reading these words, they may not know them by heart. They're reading them from a printed Megillah. Or they're chanting along with the rest of the congregation. But really... In order to fulfill the mitzvah, you have to hear it read in person from a kosher Megillah. And as such, it's only appropriate that the verse should be read again so as to satisfy that concern. Now this notion of simcha, mishum simcha, the Sharetzian says is taken from the Rishon who is known as the Mordechai. 
no connection to Mordechai HaTzadik necessarily per se. It's just a commentary on the Talmud. Earlier, at the end of chapter 689, where the Shulchan Aruch says, Min HaKtoiv, it is a good, appropriate custom, Lahavik Tanemuktanis, to bring little boys and girls to the Shul to hear the Megillah, the Mishnah Bura says, this is in order to educate them. In the mitzvah of Parsumi Nisa, the mitzvah of publicizing the miracle of Purim. And the Mishnah Bura adds something interesting. That's the reason that these verses are read aloud. So initially, we heard from the Mordechai, that's Mishum Simcha. It adds a ripple of joy into the Megillah listening experience. But here the Mishnah Bruce says that actually there's another element over here, and that is education. We want to engage the children. In fact, the Megillah reading was structured in a certain fashion, assuming that in all likelihood, little boys and girls would be present. And the little boys and girls would notice that everybody suddenly chants out loud. And this is Kedela Orer Haktanim. This is kind of to stir the children. Shalai Yishnu, that they shouldn't sleep. Or maybe daydream. Ve'yitnu Liba Melakriya. They would pay attention to the reading. Umakrim Oisim Hapsukim. So we read these verses aloud for them. Kedei Lechancham. And this, the Mishnah Baruch says, is quoted from the great codifier who wrote his own codes known as the Levush. So here we have, quoting from Levush and Mordechai, different reasons as to why these verses are read aloud. What is very clear is that this is one of only four verses that has the power of infusing the Megillah listening experience with a greater sense of joy and excitement. It has the unique property of being able to catch the children's attention and to stir their imagination. Must be a very special verse. What really is being told to us when we hear that Mordechai emerged wearing a new suit of clothes? That'll be much of the focus of today's class. So this verse, which, which, is, which is read, begins with the words, um Mordechai Yotza, and Mordechai emerged. Why did he emerge? What was the purpose of his emerging? Was it to prance around like a peacock? Listen to these words of Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech, who says, This verse emphasizes or broadcasts, makes known the righteousness of the persona of Mordechai. Namely, Mordechai did not accept upon himself any formal mantle of greatness or honor. Until he would be certain that the less fortunate members of Am Yisrael, as in not Mordechai and Esther, Esther was saved immediately. Mordechai was taken under royal protection. What about the rest of the Jewish people? They were in danger. That's why we don't hear about Mordechai emerging 
when Mordechai is appointed to a position of prominence. Let me remind you that we, many a verse ago, at the beginning of chapter 8, read that on that day, on that day that Haman was hung, the king gave his house and residuals to Esther, who immediately appointed Mordechai over it. In verse 2, he read that the king removed his ring and passed it directly to Mordechai. At the time, we spoke of the kind of a relationship between the first Jewish prime minister of a non-Jewish country, of an international empire. That's Joseph. And there, the Pharaoh removes his ring and immediately robes Yosef. And we'll talk about that in a little while. But the ringing Yosef and the robing Yosef go together. Here, we heard about the king taking off his ring, giving it to Mordechai. And then, in verse 3, we leapfrog several weeks, almost three months, to the, to the, the month of Sivan, from Nisan to Sivan, to the end of Sivan, where Esther returns, this time, to plead the plight of her people. And in their, our studies at the beginning of this chapter, we talked about why it is that Esther waited and what we are being told about those events, which seem to flow together in the Megillah, but actually do not happen in quick succession. We hear about Mordechai's appointment of Viceroy in verse 2. He doesn't emerge till verse 15. Why? Very simple, says the Alshech. Mordechai didn't come out the day he was appointed to say, Hey, everybody, did you see? I'm a really important man now. I've been given this really big position. I got a new set of clothing. I'm being facetious. The point is, Mordechai didn't do this for his own glory or grandeur, and he wouldn't even demonstrate in a public fashion until he knew that everybody was safe. And that says the Alshech, is the reason that Mordechai waits until Shahadat Nitna Bishushan. He waits for the message to be promulgated, for the decree to become known in Shushan as well. The Monas Halevi adds a fascinating detail here. He says, okay, I understand that Mordechai didn't emerge until everybody was safe. But why did he make a parade of himself altogether? And you wait and listen. We're going to hear what the Targum says. A parade indeed it was. The Manasalevi adds something really important to understand. In the city of Shushan, there were a lot of anti-Semites. In the city of Shushan, this was Haman's city. A lot of Haman's friends and henchmen were still very much entrenched in the political system. It's like even when things change in the White House, they say the State Department has a pernicious and persistent bias against Israel. And it's very hard to move the red tape. These are lackeys, people who are in positions for decades. They have their predispositions and their biases. And they act on them when they can. So this is a city that's entrenched with Hamanites and Haman's children's friends and allies. So here, Mordechai is really concerned. He says, we've got to do something to demonstrate there's a new sheriff in town. 
Now that everybody's safe, says the Manas Halevi, Mordechai emerges. He's acting very presidential, assuming this royal role, not, as the al says, for personal self-aggrandizement. It's part of the strategy of providing safety and security for Am Yisrael, for innocent Jewish people who are living in the capital who aren't yet comfortable that the storm has passed. In fact, the Alshech further emphasizes that not only did Mordechai not do this for his own self-serving purposes, but in fact, the Alshech tells us on good authority, Mordechai actually despised this new position. He wasn't comfortable with it. He was happy to be Mordechai, you know, the Jew. Mordechai, the teacher of Torah. Mordechai wore a simple kapata or a kaftan and went about his business being the rabbi or rebbe of the Jewish people. But duty calls. And now Mordechai must assume a royal role because it is only when this role becomes public, it is only when Mordechai projects with this remarkable sense of self-esteem, confidence, radiating power, that the anti-Semites take note. And they go into the little corners, holes, and shadows, and the Jewish people emerge safe, secure, and triumphant. And so Mordechai, Mordechai's power is demonstrated by virtue of a new wardrobe, a switch of style. And here's something really interesting. The Manas HaLevi contrasts this with the rise of Haman. The rise of Haman is marked by a state dinner. They break bread together, Haman and the king. And we hear about the city of Shushan tripping into a melancholy state. With Mordechai, they weren't going to break bread together. After all, Mordechai wouldn't eat food not kosher, and he certainly wasn't going to be drinking wine with Achashverosh. State dinners wouldn't cut it. Instead, it would be not food, but clothing. And interestingly enough, it was Haman himself who had made these suggestions that a commoner, even a minister, should wear the king's robes and the king's crown. Haman coveted this precise honor, but he never achieved it. Instead, Mordechai now receives these highest honors ever bestowed upon a, a civilian, a non-royal, a non-member of the nobility of actual Persian stock. Mordechai now is wearing royal robes and a golden crown, and he's being paraded out in public. So now we have, a, a, I think, a fair understanding of why this emergence is actually one of great importance. As such, let us begin our examination, our, the details of what precisely was Mordechai wearing. You know what? Before we go on to what Mordechai was actually wearing, I do want to take a moment to tie up some loose ends, if I may. So now we're ready for Mordechai's big entrance, and it comes on the heels of Shushan, the capital city, being kind of brought up, caught up to the rest of the country. Hey, everybody, in case you didn't hear, yes, there's a new sheriff. His name is Mordechai. 
the decrees, it's a different story today. The Jewish people are now going to be defending themselves with the full might of the Persian Empire's soldiers and law enforcement agents, all of the weaponry and force that will be backing them up. So the Rebbe once talked about this and he said, isn't it strange that it's kind of backwards? Isn't it strange that the message gets out everywhere else? It's almost like the last people to hear about it are the ones who live down the block from the palace. Don't you think the Buckingham neighborhood would find out about the royal edict first? And why does the Megillah put it that way even? The Rebbe was... It was 1965, and the Rebbe was talking about Rashi a lot those days. He had, in fact, promulgated a whole new method of studying Rashi to honor Rebbe Tzachana, his mother, who had passed away just days before Yom Kippur of that year. So the Rebbe said that before he was going to talk about that, he was just going to take note of the fact that Rashi says the Muvaholim, they left in great haste and urgency because they had a mission, and that was... They had to actually overtake the first set of couriers carrying the original edict. The Rebbe said that's really interesting because as the other commentaries and the Midrashim of our sages, it seems that the first decree had gotten out there, but this was a second decree that was augmenting or reframing it. He says, this is a really big chiddush. Rashi is telling us something really novel, that there were certain parts of the empire that hadn't yet got the decree, and they were overtaken by some of those very, very hasty messengers. So that's a really interesting chiddush, a really novel approach that we can see uniquely in Rashi, which that leads us, of course, to our question. If the edict was still being overtaken, in the outer reaches of the kingdom, why is it that the Pasuk says, and the law was even to be heard in Shushan itself? You know, there's a Yiddishism that goes something like this. Lebenyam is trukken. Unter den Licht is tunkel. The seashore is invariably dry, not moist. Sand is dry. The beach is a dry place. He said, if you, if you want to find things lit up, you go right under the lamp. That's the darkest place. The effulgence flows outward. In other words, oftentimes, the place that's closest to the source will be the last to know or hear. It's an interesting concept. The Rebbe applied this to a pragmatic lesson in Avodat Hashem. You know, of course, Whenever we talk about Dvar HaMelech, the word of the king, we speak of royal edicts. On a literal level, it refers to a Persian monarch, Achashverosh, Xerxes. But on a euphemistic or metaphorical level, it's talking about Malko Shel Olam, as is richly documented by many, many of the commentaries on the Megillah and the story of the Megillah as it's redacted in the Gemara. And as such, the Rebbe said, here was a lesson that he thought everybody should absorb. Shushan. Shushan was the place where Mordechai had rang the alarm bells. Shushan was the place that Mordechai and Esther fasted for three days 
along with the rest of the Jewish community. They didn't have time to get the message out past Shushan. It was Pesach. They got underway immediately. Shushan was the city in which Mordechai gathered 22,000 school children to study Torah with them. In the language that our sages use in the Medrash, he created a kol gadya. He created a sound, the sound of the flocks of Yiddish Kindalach, of small Jewish children studying Torah, which was baka, eskol harakim, which split open, shattered the glass ceilings of heaven. And it was in Shushan and through the events that had transpired over those couple of days that the Gezeda, that the decree on high was rescinded. Very interestingly, although that was the epicenter of all the action, and that's where the heavenly decree was switched, till it got to earth, till people heard about it, somehow Shushan was the last. It was only when the couriers had gone off on their widespread missions. It is only when the outer reaches of the kingdom was fully aware of what the future was set to bring and how Jewish people would be prepared, congregated, and ready to defend themselves in the most robust of fashions. It was only then that Mordechai could emerge in Shushan. It was only then that the Shushanites kind of got the mail. Why is that? What lesson does it teach us? The Nebuchadnezzar said there are many people who believe that if they are to observe or experience a proper Purim, it's got to be in Shushan Habira, in the proverbial citadel of Torah learning in an area, in a neighborhood of, well, for Hasidim, where the Rebbe is. Mordechai and Esther, the Rebbe and the Rebetzin. That's where it's happening. You want to be, you wanted to be in Brooklyn, you wanted to be in Crown Heights on Purim. And the Rebbe said you have it all wrong. In order for the holiness, in order for the energy, in order for the exuberance and enthusiasm to be felt here, he says, first those couriers have to go out there. And the Rebbe maintained that it was through the Shluchim, in their far-flung locations, bringing the joy of Purim, that ultimately Purim could be felt at the epicenter of Lubavitch, back home as well. And so the Rebbe framed this, this whole narrative as really... The climax, the climax of everything that led to the emergence of Mordechai as emphasizing the importance of making a difference in the proverbial countryside, of going out to what you would speak of in euphemistic terms as far or distant locations away from the capital and the king because in the end, it is the furthest locations that seem to ring with righteousness first. So that's a little interesting point that I thought I would share. That's from the Fabrengen of the Shabbos after Purim of the year 1965, which was Shabbos Parshat Sav. It was the 16th day of Adar, the day after Shushan Purim. At any rate, that was uh, an interesting little detail, and, and I, thought, I thought you'd enjoy that. Getting back to our study of verse 15 now. So you all understand that this is an important verse. You all understand that this is the climax. It's come to a head. Now even in Shushan, major shifts are going to be unfolding in real time because Mordechai has emerged with a new wardrobe, a switch of style, not only a switch of clothing, as you'll hear in a few moments, 
a switch in the style of leadership is also being broadcast. But first and foremost, the verses must be understood in their literal iteration. So let's try to go through this verse carefully. Mordechai came out or emerged from before the king, Bilavush Malchus. He came out in royal garments or royal wardrobe, royal attire, kingly clothing. And we hear the details. Tcheles, Vachur. Tcheles is a greenish blue wool, a very unique kind of, of, of blue, turquoise like blue. And Chur is a very bright white. So he came out in an attire of royalty. This attire of royalty was made of Tcheles and Chur. Let's talk about this on a very literal level first. So Chur, which is Hebrew for a brilliant white, a woven material, woven linen fabric, which is very, very bright. And it comes from the Hebrew word chiver, which means pale, or very, very bright. Something which, in a sense, if you will, kind of stands out. This very white garment was offset, or helped offset this very unique color of turquoise, this bluish green. So let me, let me share with you a few details about the, the trellis. First of all, the trellis is indeed identified, typically, with the same color that was used to dye the string of the tzitzit, of the tassels, of fringes that we wear. In fact, you'll soon see later, the Vilna Goren frames all of this as in mitzvah terms or in Jewish attire terms. But on a literal level, we're speaking about royal clothing. The royal clothing is first identified as trellis. Why? Well, to be fair, we don't know with certainty what trellis are. We think that trellis is a dye that's extracted from snails that live in the Mediterranean Sea or something like that. We think, although we don't know for sure, that this very unusual hue of deep blue is an extract from what they call the murex, a murex uh, slug or the murex snail. And the liquid that's used for preparing these dyes was extracted from a protective secretion of the snails that was found in the tiniest qualities in the hypobranchial glands. It would literally take thousands of snails in order to dye a single fabric or article of clothing. Now, as the Gemara explains, what this leads to is a supply and demand that isn't really being met. You need thousands of snails to get enough to create a tchela suit. That's a lot of human hours. That's a lot of snails. It takes an enormous amount of effort to be able to collect that amount of dye, and as such, it was extremely expensive. According to some sources, it was more expensive to buy this cloth than it was to buy gold. Who wore cloth like this? Very, very rich, beautiful dye. This is like the ermine of European aristocracy. In the Middle East, the only ones who wore this were either people in a ruling power position, king, emperor, or very, very high-ranking nobility. 
or at least people who could afford to live like the high-ranking nobility and the king himself. So when Mordechai emerges in clothing, which is tchelas and chur, which is this brightest white offset, this beautiful deep hue of bluish-green clothing, that's royal clothing. Regular people don't dress that way. And it's very distinctive. So Mordechai is broadcasting a message. He comes out wearing something which everybody intuitively recognizes as, that's royal attire he's wearing. That's not a regular rabbi's raiment. So this is the first detail we hear about levush malchus, that's tcheles v'chur. The second thing we hear about is an ateret zahav gdola, a large golden crown. Yeah, Haman didn't get a crown, he wanted one. But Mordechai actually wears this large golden crown. And then, in addition, there is a sachrich butz, Ve'argoman. What's a sachrich? So Rashi says a sachrich butz is a ma'ate butz. It's a, a wrap of fine linen. It's a talit. It's a shawl. Ha'osri lehit atef, which is made to enwrap oneself. So there's the clothing, and then there's the shawl, or cloak, that's wrapped around it. The Ibn Ezra says... Hatam ke'aderet. Now, aderet can be a cloak. Aderet can sometimes also be a cape. You know, Elioa Navi had this aderet of sorts. Some maintain it could even be some kind of coat, some kind of like overcoat. So I don't know with certainty if Rashi and Ibn Ezra are saying different things. According to the Judaic press, he, he maintains in his translation that Rashi believed it was a shawl, like a talit, something you wrap yourself in, and that Ibn Ezra is defining it as a coat. I'm not sure where he gets that from, but I'm telling you what Ibn Ezra says. He calls it an aderet. And he says, Butz, that's bad, that's very fine linen, and it's min mimini pishtam b'mitzrayim. It comes from Egypt. It's an import. V'hudak v'yokar. It's very, very fine, very thin. It's very expensive. Now, it's really interesting to note, as mentioned, the first Jew ever appointed to the position of viceroy or prime minister is Joseph. And when Joseph is appointed to the position, he gets the ring, he gets the chain of office, but that seemed to have been an Egyptian thing. In Persia, it's a crown. But after getting the ring, Joseph received clothes, clothes, which are called in the Torah, Big Day Sheish. This is Genesis chapter 41, verse 42. It says, Big Day Sheish, linen clothes. Yeah, big deal. Anybody can wear linen clothes. Oh, no, no, says the Chizkuni. This is a very fine linen. Regular people didn't wear linen like this. Either had to be a king or somebody really prominent or important. So we can kind of cross-reference what the Chizkuni says in, in the Chumash Bereshis, in Parsha Smiketz, to what we're reading about here. So it seems that in addition to these royal robes that Mordechai was clad in, he also had a wraparound of very, very special linen. And this came along with Argomon. Now Argomon is similar to the... the uh, dye that was used for the trelet is a different kind of dye which is used um, from the glands of these tiny little snails 
uh, I think that the trailer they think is called the spiny dimurex or the murex branderus and the argomon, or sorry, maybe that's the argomon. And in, anyway, the, the color of argomon is a, it's purple, kind of a deep purple, which is a mixture of red and blue. And that will be important later on. So once again, it takes thousands of snails to get this, to get enough dye to actually create the fabric so that you have enough for a shawl or a coat. Who wears things like this? The kings, the highest of nobility, people who can afford to dress in a manner of high distinction. So Mordechai is wearing things which very, very clearly broadcast his new position as being the viceroy, as being the most influential man in the Persian Empire. Now, to be fair, Mordechai's clothing is also, well, I would say it's, it's indicative of the new position in a way that's very, very clear to everybody present, Jews and non-Jews alike. If you really want to get a sense of what, what this uh, parade looked like, you have to look into the Targum. Interestingly, not the Targum Sheni, the Targum Sheni, which is also called Pesheganaksov, is typically much more explanatory. The regular Targum on the Megillah is usually pretty basic. But here, on these verses, it's the other way around. The, the Targum on verse 15 is enormous. All kinds of fascinating details. It talks about Mordechai wearing additional accoutrements and all kinds of other clothing. It talks about the finest silks. It talks about clothing that was covered with sequins of gold and precious stones and pearls. It talks about Mordechai wearing some kind of robe that had flashed different colors, if you look at it from a different perspective, of very unusual material. And this is not even mentioned in the Megillah. This is the kind of things that are on the side. The Targum Sheni suggests that Mordechai's attire, the attire, the suit he was wearing, would have costed 120 talents of gold. All right, that's an expensive little costume he's got there. I stumbled on this a number of years ago. I don't remember how or why, but it was costumes that were worn to the ball thrown by the Tsar and Tsarina. I think maybe the year is 1912 or 1913 or something like that. Well, it's probably the last royal ball a Romanov threw. And there are pictures of the different members of the royal family and Russian aristocracy and nobility. Pictures, actual pictures of the costumes that they wore. And, and there's a write-up of what these kinds of costumes would have costed in modern day currency. And it's not far from what we're talking about here. Literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now the Targum also talks about tzitzit. So Mordechai clearly had time to work on this unique, or very, very special wardrobe. I'm sure he had time to make sure there was no shotness. Nothing, no wool and linen were mixed. They were all separate garments and not fashioned, fastened to one another. And there was also a tzitzit that were 
especially attached to this shawl. The Targum says that on Mordechai's legs there were these um, strings of, of pearls and, and precious stones inlaid on the, down, down his pantaloons and even talks about the shoes that he wore. These gold curled shoes that had sequins and pearls and, and gems crusted on them. It talks about a sword he wore. The sword was emblazoned. It was the sword of the city of Media that had emblazoned upon it the image of Jerusalem skyline. Does that mean a picture of the Beis HaMikdash? I don't know, but a picture of Yerushalayim. And it says that that was the sword itself. And then the scabbard of the sword had upon it the city of Mechuzah, which was a city that was renowned for its Jewish population in Bavel. That was once the seat of Torah study. So I guess you could call that, uh, I don't know, the New York City of the diaspora. So there was an image of that as well on Mordechai's sword and scabbard. He had this marvelous turban with many, many colors and Macedonian gold crown. I don't know what's so special about Macedonian gold, but clearly a very, very refined form of gold. And the Targum says, very interestingly, and above this crown, totafan. There was tefillin, the head tefillin, which are called totafot. The mikabin bidava, that were set or inlaid in gold. So that's not the way tefillin are worn usually. And yet, the tefillin were emplaced, were, were, were I guess like encased by this gold. The yodin kolamamaya umaya vilishnaya di so that all nations would know this is Mordechai the Jew. His crown jewel or the center, the diadem of the crown was the tefillin. Now there's an interesting discussion about how exactly would that have looked? How can you wear tefillin that are set in gold? So the exact position of these tefillin in a gold crown is explained in a variety of ways. According to some, there was actually an opening in the crown and the crown kind of fit around the tefillin. So the tefillin worn on Mordechai's head and the crown it seemed to encase the tefillin, but the tefillin were actually worn on Mordechai's head in a kosher fashion. Alternatively, there's the suggestion made that this took place immediately in Chol HaMoed Pesach, which doesn't kind of jibe with what we've learned, because it would seem, according to the al that, that Mordechai only emerges after everybody's safe, and that doesn't happen until much, much later. But anyway... I suppose if you want to read these verses as, as literally as you can, and, and assuming that they are a chronological continuation of after verse 3, taking place on the day of, which, as we said, does not seem to jibe with what the Alshach says at all, but if you want to look at it that way, then on these days we don't wear tefillin, so the tefillin were placed in the crown, because Mordechai said, if I wear a headpiece, it won't be sans tefillin. They must know who I am. They must know what represents me, even as a member of now, of Persian nobility. Ultimately, I'm Mordechai HaYehudi. And the greatest of crown for me 
is the tefillin that I wear on my head. So at any rate, however you want to take this targum, maybe both are true. Maybe times that Mordechai didn't wear tefillin, the tefillin had a little compartment within the crown. And maybe other times the crown actually could open up so that people would see the tefillin that Mordechai was wearing. But at any rate, this is the kind of outfit Mordechai shows up in. And he makes a heck of an impression. Heck of an impression. In fact, it is uh, said that when Mordechai emerged in this fashion, that nafal pachdei al Everybody was in awe of what they saw. Mordechai, representing the Jewish people, had risen to a supreme level of prominence and importance. The Vilna Goen, as mentioned, has a little bit of a different take on this whole, on this whole clothing business. He says, Levush Malchus is a talus. Maybe a beautiful talit, but still a talit shal mitzvah. He says the Zohar calls the talit Atifa de Malchuta, attire or the wrap of royalty. He says, Tchelet, come on, that is the Tchelet of the Tzitzit. It's got to be Tzitzit. Chur, that's the love one, that's the white of the Tzitzit. What is blue and white? Don't tell me the Israeli flag. Blue and white, traditionally, from time immemorial, I'm talking 3,300 plus years, is Tzitzit. That's blue and white. Those are the Jewish colors. They've always been the Jewish colors. Unfortunately, we lost Tchelet after the destruction of the Beis HaMegdash. Blue and white were our natural colors makes perfect sense for a Jewish state to be identified by blue and white. Ateret Zahav Gedola? That's the tefillin, he says. Sachrich Butz? A wrap around? He says, sure. What do you wrap with the tefillin? Tefillin straps. Mordechai came out in tefillin straps. Argoman? Argoman, says the Vilna Goen, is a euphemism for the tefillin shalyad because the tefillin of the head is in four compartments and Argoman is... All the hand tefillin, because argaman is a color that's mixed of primary colors, red and blue, purple. He says the hand tefillin comprises all four messages of the tefillin together as one. Anyway, that's how the Vilna Gaon wants to frame it. And of course, I don't think that that takes away from the literal meaning. Mordechai definitely emerged in this royal resplendent attire, and he looked presidential, and he impressed the crowd, and he got the message out in a very profound way, Shushan was in shock, in a positive and good sense. And we'll talk about that soon. We'll get to talk about the city. But the, the, the parade had the impact it was intended to have, and it wasn't just about the talus, the tefillin. It wasn't just about the straps. But it was about the literal impression as well. But the literal impression, because it ultimately embodied who Mordechai was, as a member of Amiso. In other words, his attire had its intended effect because it was inextricably woven, sewn together with these Jewish artifacts. And the very important message, I think, for us is that when we dress Jewishly with pride, the world will respect us. That is actually our mark of royal distinction. We should be proud of it. At any rate, let's go back to the parade. When Mordechai comes out of the palace, when he emerges, according to the Targum Sheni, the streets were decorated. 
They were decorated with myrtles, which is interesting because Esther's nom de guerre is Hadassah. Her original name was Hadassah, in fact. So Hadassim was maybe a play on words or ideas. The streets were covered with beautiful fabrics, much as it was during Ahasuerus's big 180-day ball. There were strapping young men who carried small crowns before Mordechai as he went forward. And there was a royal officer carrying the crown, symbolic of the power of the Persian Empire, the governance of the country itself. Kohanim had arrived and heralded Mordechai's emergence by the sounding of trumpets and shofrot. As if to say, you better show up now. Everybody's got to come to this parade or else. The ten children of Haman. Yeah, they were there too. They weren't hung yet, just yet. And they were actually shackled together. Prisoners. They acknowledged Mordechai's rise to supreme authority. They said, according to the Targum, Baruch HaMokoim Baruchu, Blessed is the source of all space, blessed is he, referring to God. Who recompenses the righteous, who brings the evil just deserts for the wicked. Our father Haman was a fool, they said. He relied on residuals. Mordechai was a modest, humble, and sincere man who relied on his fasting and his prayer. So this is what the Medrash says about, about that great day and that big parade. And here I want to share with you a fascinating observation of our rabbis. Did you remember that when Mordechai rang the alarm bells, it was with clothing in the streets. Mordechai went out. He went out into the public thoroughfare wearing this caustic kind of clothing made of burlap. On his head there was ashes indicating that he was in a state of mourning and penance. Rabbeinu Avram Galiko says, don't you see the stunning turnabout? It was in the zechut, it was in the reward of Mordechai's humility. It was because of how he chose to ring the alarm by wearing that kind of clothing and going out into the public thoroughfare that now Hashem rewards him. It was precisely because he tore his clothes in mourning and sadness of the assimilation of his own brothers his Jew and sisters, his own Jewish people, that now Hashem had him robed in these royal raiments. It was precisely because he put the ashes where the tefillin go that now there was a crown, a gold diadem that encased the area of the tefillin. Earlier, it said, Shushan Navocha. 
the city of Shushan was bewildered and downcast. Now, the verse finishes off, The city of Shushan is Tzohalo. And I'll soon address the word Tzohalo. And Smecha comes from the word Simcha, which means really happy. So clearly Tzohalo is a form of happiness, but we're going to talk about exactly what that means. The Medrash is very interesting. The Targum says that when Mordechai was being paraded in the street, Esther was watching. The Esther tzadikta madika mincharka. Esther is looking through the window, observing all this. And the reason is because a queen is not permitted to go out and mix with the populace. But she wanted to participate. So was watching from the palace. Chazar mordechai enoihi. Mordechai turns around and he catches her eye. Think about how special. Think about how amazing a moment when Mordechai and Esther lock eyes. Mordechai says to her, I suppose she was in earshot. Praise be Hashem who didn't allow you to turn into prey in their fangs, and their teeth. And Esther responds, She says, My help came from God. This is the beautiful conversation that unfolds between Esther and Mordechai in the midst of this glorious, incredible parade on this beautiful day when all is about to change for the best and the sun is shining again. Now, as, as um, Mordechai and Esther have this exchange and Mordechai moves forward, and now, before we re- read that he could not come into the king's courtyard, if you'll remember, Mordechai was lovush sak, and he wasn't able to come lefnei shar ha-melech because you can only come wearing beautiful clothing. Well, here's the continuation of the vena hapoch. So Mordechai now is walking in Sha'ar HaMelech, right in the seat of the empire's governance, right at the palace gates, and he's wearing the most resplendent, beautiful clothing. When Mordechai and Haman rose to greatness, the way they reacted is very, very indicative of who they were as people. Haman immediately gorged himself on fine food and got drunk and then went on to initiate an edict of annihilation. Mordechai, on the contrary, when he emerges victorious, comes out in a manner which will impress others so that they will behave. That's what this is about. He demonstrates his Jewish pride with his tzitzit and his tefillin. How did the city react? We know how this is arranged, what it was designed to achieve. How did people react? Shushan, the city of Shushan was Sahala v'samecha. So it gets really funny, you know. I start to, Sahala is not a typical word. So I start looking at the uh, English translations. 
it's just almost cute. How would they translate the word sahala? All right, so the kihat uh, uh, translation is celebrated. Okay, I don't know why sahala is celebrated, but that's, that's what they wrote. Uh, the art scroll wrote, the city of Shushan was cheerful. Why cheerful? I don't know. Because it's just another English word for happiness or for joy. <laughs> I honestly don't know. In the Steinsaltz edition, he translates it as reveled. So, so far we got three translations, three different words, where celebrating the city is celebrating, or the city is cheerful, or the city revels. In the Judaica press, it says they shouted. That sounds funny, really? They shouted? And finally, in the, um, in the Gutenberg version, the Slager version, it says jubilant. All right, so what do you think? I'm going to go with, um, with the shouted and the jubilant. I'll tell you why. First off, I want you to know that it's actually impossible to translate the word sahola because there isn't really an English word for it. And English is a language that's a composite of many different languages. You get a little bit of French, a little bit of German, a little bit of Spanish. You know, the Romance languages mixed together. Alsace, Lorraine, and, the, and its influences. English is a hodgepodge. There are multiple words in English which mean practically and literally exactly the same thing. It's just prose. It's almost poetry. We like to use multiple words or adjectives to describe something because it sounds good, but it doesn't really mean anything. It's all style and oftentimes no or very little substance. Hebrew is very different. It's a holy tongue, a sacred tongue, a precise and perfect language. Every single word means something. There aren't really any extra words in Biblical Hebrew. If we use a word, it's because only this word could convey that message. So there's something about Tzahala which is unique. What is it? What does the word mean? Rashi doesn't opine. We don't know, we don't know what he would think. The Ibn Ezra does comment. He says, Pirush Tzahala Kitam Oira. You're going to have to understand Sahala in a, in a photonic sense. As, as light is to the eyes, Sahala is to the mood or spirit. What does that mean? But the Ibn Ezra says, imagine if you can, he says, Adam Yeshev Bechayshech, a person is sitting in the darkness, literally, figuratively, he's in the darkness. And then, then he's released into the great outdoors. It's a hepech, it's a radical shift. You don't slowly go from darkness into a gray or somber. You're going from a dark dungeon into a brilliant day, a beautiful day. So it was for the Jewish people. It was the darkest of nights and suddenly the brightest of days. That describes the mood swing. So there was a shift, a shift of style, a shift of style on a literal level. Mordechai's wearing different clothes. A shift of style in who he was, in his style of leadership, as we're going to talk about soon. And that results to a major shift in the mood of the local Jewish population. In fact, the Ibn Ezra says, when he says, Ha'ir Shushan, 
So Halavasamecha, he says, Ha'ir Shushan, Shasham Hayahudim. Many Jews lived there. So because many Jews lived there, it felt like the city was jubilant, but actually it refers to the Jewish population of Shushan that was now so joyous. After all, their representative had just become the most important man in the kingdom. So, to maybe develop this a little bit further, that Tzahala represents a radical shift, an onset, a sudden onset of joy, I wanted to share with you that the Ma'amloes, quoting Mepharshim, doesn't really say who, says that Tzahala is an external expression of joy. It's a simcha klape chutz. It represents in, in, in giving ear, represents articulating or expressing one's joy. But simcha, he says, that's more personal. That's more panemiate. That's something, you know, you feel happy, but you are jubilant. You're shouting. You're sharing it with the whole world. In other words, it's not enough that the Jewish people reveled or celebrated. They're all right. These words are all good. They're all good words. A cheerful disposition is a disposition other people will see. I could be happy. You may not know it. But if I'm cheerful, you're going to know it because when I'm cheerful, I share it. If I'm celebrating, I celebrate publicly. Jubilant. That's a really good word because jubilant is, it indicates kind of a, an attitude, a way in which one carries and expresses themselves, which is probably why the Judaic approach wrote shouted, but that's a very funny word to use because shouted has nothing to do with joy. But it was a joy that was shouted out, proclaimed. It was very, very publicly expressed. So he says that's what this is. Furthermore, quoting other Mepharshim, he says, that Sahala is Meloshan Bihirus Utsililut. It comes from the term glowing, illumination, which sounds very much similar to what the Ibn Ezra says, although he doesn't quote him. He seems to have, quoting other Mepharshim, other commentaries as well, and he says, it was a Hepech bin Hamavucha, the profound polar opposite of the state of meltdown that they were in. They entered into this joyous, jubilant, cheerful, effervescent state of joy, almost in the snap of the finger, or so it felt. A sudden transformation and change. Really, if you think about what we've just said, if you think about what we've just learned, it embodies the essence of Purim, which is about vinahapoch, a transformation, and Purim is a boisterous holiday. It's a, it's a very loud Yom Tif. You know, Yom Kippur, which is almost like Purim, it's Yom Kippurim, is also a day of joy. The Mishnah says it was amongst the most joyous days on the calendar, but it was a serene joy. It's an inner joy. It's not a shout-out-from-the-rooftops kind of joy, but Purim is. So tzahala is actually a fantastic word. And like so many words in Hebrew, no one word can actually capture its meaning. <laughs> you need a, a sentence or two to be able to fully appreciate what you can express in Hebrew in a single noun. It's been said that Hebrew is the richest of languages. It's also a cryptic language. Unless you really know what's being said, it could easily go right over your head. If you study Rashi and Chumash so often, he'll spend time analyzing the etymology of a word. 
trying to cross-reference the meaning of a word with the way it appears elsewhere so that you appreciate the full meaning and the profundity of this particular biblical or scriptural expression. So that's the business of Tzahala, and it sounds like a very Jewish thing, but in fairness, it wasn't only Jewish. Our rabbis tell us that when it doesn't, it doesn't say v'hayehudim, it doesn't say that the Jewish people, although the Ibn Ezra says the Jewish population, it doesn't only say, it says ha'ir shushan. And in fairness, the city of Shushan is not a Jewish city. Furthermore, if you go to verse 16, and we'll go there tomorrow, it starts with layohudim, hayta'ora v'simcha v'sasim v'yikar. We don't talk about Tzahola, but we do mention Simcha. And Tzahola is related to light, so there's going to be light, there's going to be joy, there's going to be gladness, happiness. We'll talk about that. We'll learn about that. But verse 16 was unique to the Jewish people. Verse 15 was inclusive of the entire city. And that's because, our rabbis tell us, not only the Jewish people were happy, everybody was happy with this new change, with this new leadership. Miderech HaOlam, says the Maimon Mardechai, it is common in the world that when you have a new appointee, there's lots of unhappy people. Why? There's apprehension, anxiety. How will he govern? Will he be benevolent and kind? Will he be careful, sensitive, considerate of the populace? Or ride roughshod over everybody? We don't know. Haman wasn't a nice guy. If you happened to be in his good graces, if you prostrated yourself to him and bowed low, he'd take care of you. Nobody loved Haman. They were terrified of him. Mordechai, however, when he rises to this position of great prominence and importance, Ha'ir says the Maimon Mordechai, the city itself rejoiced. Why? Because everybody knew. He would bring nobody harm except if you're a hateful criminal. Good people would do well under Mordechai's tutelage. And therefore, he says, this joy was very public. It was out in the streets. They were singing in the streets. He says it wasn't only a personal joy, it wasn't a temper joy, it wasn't a joy that the Jewish people kept inside, but rather, it was a joy that caused everybody to express themselves. Says Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech, it was not only the Jewish people. Ela ha'ir shushan. The city rejoiced. The city rejoiced. So the change in style was due to Mordechai's humility. It was due to what was so unique about Mordechai. As our rabbis tell us, this is our beautifully documented in the commentary called Gan Na'ul on the Megillah, that in the book of Mishlei, in the 26th chapter, it says, Birbois tzaddikim, when tzaddikim increase or are appointed to a position of power or importance, yismacha'am, the nation is happy. Uvim shoyim, when the wicked are given the ability to govern, when they rule, ye'onach'am, 
the city or the populace groans. This refers to Mordechai and Esther. Esther is the queen. Mordechai is the viceroy. When they rose to prominence and greatness, it caused joy for others as it is written, not the Jewish people because our man is now powerful because that's our woman, that's our girl there. Everybody felt good because they knew that the fact that a righteous person would occupy a position of governance and power could only bode well for the people. However, when you had the iron fist of the wicked, and we see that in the Megillah, it says, after Haman rose, there too, there's a discussion whether it is only the Jewish people or really the entire populace. And why is this? Why is it that when the righteous rule, everybody's happy? When the wicked assert power, people aren't really joyous. The Ganol says it's very simple. Tzaddikim do not seek power. They eschew it. They take it heavy-heartedly. They assume the position because they must. Rashoyim, the wicked, are power-hungry. They love to be in control. And because of this, it's all about them. It's about them, not the population. It's about how they can prosper, how they can succeed at the expense of all others. As you see, when Haman rose to greatness, he forced everybody to prostrate themselves before him. And of course, set in motion a program of genocide against the entire nation. Mordechai, on the contrary, when he comes out and celebrates, when he comes out and emerges in this resplendent new position, the whole city is joyous together with him. And now, my dear friends, for the climax of today's class, we've talked much about this notion of clothes. Clothes seem to play a very, very big part in the major turnaround. We talked about this verse as being a pivotal verse in the Megillah. So why is it that the miracle, the turnabout, the salvation of the Jewish people is embodied in a verse that talks about a wardrobe? What's up with these clothes? What's the deeper meaning? In the last few minutes of today's class, I'm going to attempt to share with you some incredible mystical secrets as they are articulated in the Maimorim of Chassidus. Especially, I'm going to begin, my original point of departure is going to be a comment and a brief explanation of the Alter Rebbe in Torah Or and the way this was elucidated by our Rebbe at the Maimor that he delivered at the Purim Suda, the Fabrengen of Purim of 1969. So the Alter Rebbe says, if you count the different clothing, you get the number six. It says, there's Levush Malchus. The first thing we hear about the clothes is that they are royal. He says, this corresponds to the six orders of Mishnah. 
That's the oral law. That's the foundation of what we call Torah Shabal Peh, the oral tradition of Yiddishkeit, of Judaism, which was passed to Moses orally, and then from generation to generation, until Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the priest, seventh in the dynasty, begun by Hillel the elder, makes the momentous decision to commit the oral Torah to a canon of sorts, to writing, not scripture, but to writing known as Mishnah. Mishnah is the primary foundational body of the oral law. And there are six orders in the Mishnah. So the Alter Rebbe says, Malchus, royal, that corresponds to the first order in the Mishnah known as Zra'im. Zra'im literally translates as seeds. And that's because, according to the teachings of Kabbalah, Malchus represents the lowest emanation of divinity, if you will. It represents the notion of creation actualized in an earthy, soil-like manner. It's the ground zero or the very bottom of the pecking order of the spiritual hierarchy that brings existence to life. And so Malchus represents offer, soil. Well, that's where seeds get planted. So that's the first thing he says. And I, I'm, I'm glossing over this. I'm, I'm really kind of almost sharing it quickly with you. If you want to better appreciate this, you need to go and study that mimer. You need to study the way it is amplified by the Tzemach Tzedek in Urat Torah. And then, of course, you need to learn many other mimer mechsidis. For this subject, most importantly, that mimer of the Rebbe from Tavshin Chavtes. The second is Tcheles. So there's Malchus and Tcheles. Tcheles is blue. And that, the notion of Tcheles, represents the order of Moed. Moed is the cycle of time. Moed literally means festival. And of course, the different festivals of the Jewish people, whether it's Shabbat, that's weekly, or the holidays that are annual, of course, have everything to do with the boundaries of time. That's also known as Tichla. The word Tichla refers to the nature, the temporary nature of material boundaries, not only physical space, but even of time. Chur, the bright white, that corresponds to the order of Mishnah called Noshim, literally translates as woman, more broadly speaking, matrimony. And that's because Chur in Aramaic is Nukva, another word for the feminine. There's much more to say about that. But, you know, brides come in white gowns, white wedding dresses, and so on and so forth. Ateres Zahav Gdola, a great big crown. That corresponds to the order of mission known as Nezikin, or damages. And that's because the crown encompasses the head. The Gemara of Bavabasar says, Hachkim. You want to become really smart. You should study the order of Nezikin. So the Alter Rebbe draws this corollary between Nezikin and the crown of the head. The linen shawl or cloak, the Sachrich Butz, that refers to Kodshim, or the order of Beit HaMikdash, holy things. Of course, the high priest on the holiest day of the year wears clothing that are made of you guessed, the finest linen. And finally, our or purple represents the notion of 
taharot, with the order of Mishnah that speaks about the notion of purity and getting away from a condition that's the opposite. The Talmud in Mesechet Shabbos connects the notion of tahara to the notion of dat. Now dat, freely translated as knowledge, but more broadly, it could really be a, an attitude, almost a bias. In the spherotic tree, Chachma, Bina, Das, Chesed, Gevura, Netzach, Oteferes, in that, if you follow that order, Dat is kind of a, an, a melding, a mixing, an amalgamation of both Chesed, of Chachma and Bina. Argaman, purple, is made of the primary colors of red and blue mixed together. So that becomes this mix, this composite, this harmony of primary colors or harmony of primary intellectual faculties. And so it represents the notion of purity, of taras, which is das. Now, I know that that sounds very, very odd and probably difficult for a lot of you to wrap your heads around, and that's okay. I encourage you to go and study the mimer. But really the point I want to make is that the Alter Rebbe specifically chooses to link the different types of clothing, six in total, with the six orders of Mishnah. What's the connection? Well, just because the number six shows up here and the number six shows up there, that suddenly the six orders of Mishnah become the sixth article of clothing? So in this Maimer, the Rebbe says that the truth is, even when a Jew behaves inappropriately, Yisrael, who is still always connected to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. No amount of sin can ever extinguish the core essence of who we really are as Jewish people. Sometimes, our Jewish essence is basically concealed, covered over with layers of crust and dirt and filth. It's there, but you can't see it easily. Sometimes, we don't wear it on our sleeve. We don't have it filling our mind, imagination, or emotional reality. But, you know, it's, it's there. In extreme moments, I know I can always break the glass. I know I can pull that string. I, I have it. I'm, it's, I'm engaged. Not every day, but I'm, I'm still there. I show up, says the, the three-day year, or the Kaddish, or the Bar Mitzvah. I'm there. You know, when, when the alarm bells ring, don't you worry, I'm there. And then the third level is, of course, revealed. And that's when a person is living in a vibrant sense with his inner essence, his neshama aflame and aglow. Obviously, the third is the way things are supposed to be. And this mimer that Rebbe says that our relationship with God is punctuated with the idea of reciprocity. Hashem responds to us as we respond to Him. If we live in a way in which our Yiddishkeit is totally concealed, that Hashem chooses to treat us as if He isn't there. God is always there. So is your neshama. Your neshama is concealed. Hashem tzilcha, God's your shadow, says the Maggid of Mizrich. Your neshama is concealed? God says, I'll be concealed too. Then sometimes we are proud to be Jewish. At least when there's a problem, when there's an issue, when something's happening in Israel, sign me up, I'm ready to be counted. Don't call me for the minion. But if there's a demonstration, if somebody has to pound on the table and say, yes, I am proud to be a Jew, I'm Yisrochai, I'm here. 
That's the Jew in emergency situations. Hashem responds in kind. When you really need Him, suddenly you'll notice Hashem's presence there. And then? And then there's this notion that you live a life that's punctuated with holiness, that you feel Hashem's presence every moment and every iota of your existence. And then you can expect same in return. Hashem reciprocates. The Rebbe suggests that everything in our reality, including our relationship with God, is to be found or mirrored in the Torah itself. When we talk about Torah, there is the Torah Shebikhtav, the scripture, and the Torah Shebaalped is the oral Torah. What's the primary difference? You can't study scripture without encountering God. He's everywhere with the exception of this book. God said, God did. People rebelled, God turned away from them. The narrative of the Bible always includes the voice of God and the presence of God with the exception of the book of Esther. Hashem is there in a very overt way, if you will. Now the oral Torah, on the other hand, doesn't talk a lot about God. It's God's will, it's God's wisdom. You have to look for that. A person can study the Talmud, chas v'shalom, and forget about God altogether. What does God have to do with this? It's just fascinating mental gymnastics. It's just law. Law and jurisprudence and philosophy. Ah. But you know, if you scratch beneath the surface, of course it's Hashem's Torah. That represents the Jew who reveals his connection and his feeling of Hashem's presence in exceptional moments. Now, ask yourself the simple question. The Jews in the time of Mordechai, who were they like? They weren't really like the Jew who was living his vibrant Yiddishkeit. They were doing a lot of things they shouldn't have done. But when Mordechai rang the alarm bells, they all came home. They were that emergency Jew. That's a reflection, not of Scripture, but of Mishnah. And so the Rebbe says, at the climax of the miracle of Purim, Mordechai emerges. He's wearing clothing, clothing that are symbolic of the orders of Mishnah, or the oral Torah, which is a reflection of our Purim era experience. Zoldarebish to help and Almighty God should help us. Not only we should not be concealed Jews, we should have our Yiddishkeit out in the open, not only in a manner of being under the duress of the kind of Lahashmid Laharigula Abed of Haman's decree, which in a sense forces us to express our Yiddishkeit. But instead, as the Rebbe says in that famous Maimar of Atatitzava, to live with dedication to pulsate with devotion in a way which punctuates every single day, every single moment, not only when you're under duress. And that, of course, is the greatest way for us not only to usher in Purim, but Amir Hashem, the Geula HaAmitas V'Hashlema, with the coming of Mashiach, the Mheira, will be Amenu Amen. Thank you so much for joining. Have a beautiful day.